Well, good evening. It's lovely to be with you all uh, this evening, and thanks to Michael and the team for leading us in worship this evening. Our passage is taken from John 15, so if you have a Bible, open it or switch it on or whatever we do these days, um, to John chapter 15. And we're continuing on. Uh, I think Gary was speaking from the same chapter last week, so we're continuing on, and we're reading from verse 18. John 15 and verse 18. And it reads like this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first, because I was with you. Let me finish there at verse 4 of chapter 16. Can we pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, we know that your word is active and living. And so God, we pray that you will speak through your word this evening to us. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be acceptable to you. Amen. So the setting for our passage this evening. It's Jesus' final evening with his disciples. There are empty dishes on the table. Their feet have been freshly washed. And one of them, Judas, has already gone into the night. Jesus has been speaking with his friends for some time telling them that he will be leaving them and returning to the Father, but that the Holy Spirit is coming to replace him. There's rich material here about the Trinity, but the main point is that by believing in Jesus, the disciples have been brought into the life of God. They're threaded into the very life and love of Father, Son, and Spirit. But Jesus isn't content to talk in just theory and concepts. He also has some real practical direction he wants to give the disciples. 
And so across chapter 15, Jesus has been speaking of relationships. The first relationship he spoke about in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 15 is their relationship with Christ as branches to the vine, which I understand Gary spoke about last week. The second relationship we find moving on from verse 9, and it's their relationship with each other. To stay connected to the life of God, they must stay connected to each other. Love each other as Jesus has loved them. They must serve each other in humility, as Jesus had demonstrated just earlier that very evening by washing the disciples' feet. So up until this point, the focus of the conversation has been on what will happen to Jesus and the implications for the disciples. But now Jesus turns to the third relationship which he wants to highlight, and that's the relationship with the world. And it's not a happy picture. Jesus tells the disciples that the world will hate them as it had hated, as it had hated him. So this evening, I want to cover three things that we can draw from the passage this morning. You can see that I've been training in Union College, so they've thoroughly Presbyterianized me. So we're on three points this evening. Hopefully that's the only way they've Presbyterianized me. So firstly, we're going to look at how the world's hatred will manifest itself. What will it actually look like? Secondly, we look at why the world will hate the followers of Jesus, the why. And thirdly and finally, I want to look at why Jesus addresses this subject with the disciples and if there is any light for them and for us in this passage. So what will hatred look like? This passage of hatred stands in stark contrast to what Jesus had just been speaking about previously, the love the disciples must have for one another. And Jesus tells the disciples that not only will the world hate them, but it will actively persecute them. Chapter 16 and verse 2, Jesus tells them that the persecution will take two forms. They will be put out of the synagogue, and indeed, some will be killed. Let's look at the first one of these in a little detail. To understand the significance for the disciples of being put out of the synagogue, I think we need to spend a little time just putting ourselves into their shoes in first century Jerusalem. The synagogue held and continues to hold far more significance for Jews than church maybe does for us. The life of the synagogue was intricately linked with the life of the religious community. And the religious community was the totality of the Jewish life. The very definition of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, right back to Abraham, was as a community called out by Yahweh to be set apart for his purposes. The moral and community law that we read through Exodus and Deuteronomy was the constitution of the nation of Israel. But the ceremonial law that centered on the synagogue was the very heartbeat of the Jewish community. The sacrificial practices of worship in the synagogue distinguished between clean and unclean and maintained the holiness of the individual and the community. That called outness that was their very identity. The Holy of Holies was the place of the presence of Yahweh, and the priests mediated between the individual, the community, and the Lord. To be driven out of the synagogue was to be driven from what had been their religious community, cut off from links with those among whom they had previously witnessed and worshipped. And because of the intricate interweaving of religious and community life, 
Such a ban was really the social equivalent of a death sentence. And this, of course, not to detract from the second of Jesus' warnings, that some of the disciples would receive an actual death sentence, would lose their lives. Sobering stuff, isn't it? And the persecution of followers of Jesus continues today. We hear some of it on the news. If you remember back to 69 Christians killed last year on Easter Sunday in a bomb blast in a public park in Lahore. But there's also much that we don't hear about. Dr. Isaac Shaw of Delhi Bible Institute recently spoke of training 33,000 men since 1995, many of whom expect to lose their life for the gospel. In northern Nigeria, there is an average of five Christian churches attacked every Sunday. And I know that many of you follow the work of organizations such as Open Doors as they supply Bibles, train church leaders, provide practical support, emergency relief, pray and support Christians who suffer persecutions for their faith across the globe. Just a few minutes on the Open Doors website will reveal to you a world that is both horrific and terrifying for our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world. Persecution of this kind, losing one's life for your faith, seems a long way from any degree of possibility for us as Western Christians. Although it was only August last year that saw Catholic priest Father Jacques Hamel executed in his church in Normandy by ISIS. Yet this is generally seen as an isolated incident. Yet we see significant changes in our own Western society in recent years. Please understand, I'm not in any way comparing our experiences here in the United Kingdom and in Belfast in particular to that which our brothers and sisters suffer for Christ across the world. I think that would be irresponsible and, dare I say it, insulting to make that comparison. However, I also feel it would be irresponsible not to acknowledge something of the changes in culture that have pushed Christianity increasingly towards the fringes of society in recent decades. Because this is the reality of where we live and is the place where Jesus' words continue to have relevance to us today. It can be argued that we now live in a post-Christian society One where personal worldviews, ideologies, religious movements even, and culture are no longer rooted in the language and assumptions of Christianity as they had been previously. I wonder how many of us responded with some skepticism maybe when David Cameron's Christmas message as Prime Minister in 2015 called Britain a Christian country whose religious values have made it a home to people of all faiths and none. I'm sure we all heard the news reports about the National Trust egg hunt at Easter time and yet with Easter removed from the title despite a partnership with Cadbury, a company with a long Christian heritage. Some cities in the UK now advertise Winterville rather than Christmas. There are workplace disputes over Christian jewellery, challenges over public prayer. The Eurovision Song Contest strapline last night, yes, I did watch it. Who else did? Come on, hands up. Yeah, shame on you all. The the Eurovision Song Contest strapline last night was celebrate diversity. 
And culture urges us to embrace all, be open to all, and be a society that fights for equality and fair rights. And those are all good ambitions and values that find their roots in Scripture. And yet, how often does it feel like the only right that is no longer valid is the right to believe in and follow Christian values? to be a committed follower of Jesus, to hold to the teaching of Scripture. Let me reiterate, I do not in any way want to compare the changes in society we experience to the awful horrors that our brothers and sisters face in the global church. Yet the Bible calls us to be wise, and we must recognize and be alert to the cultural pressures coming to bear on us for being followers of Jesus. So to our second point this evening, why this response from the world? Why will the world hate the followers of Jesus? Jesus, in speaking to the disciples in our passage this evening, has one eye on the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and the other eye on the world in general. So how do we know this? Well, if you look at verse 25 with me, it reads, But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Jesus said that their hatred will fulfill their law. What is their law? Well, it's the Torah around which the Jewish life and the life of the Pharisees in particular is centered. Not only that, but we have the passage quoted, they hated me without reason. Comes from Psalm 69 and verse 4. A psalm written by David that depicts the figure of a righteous sufferer who is zealous for God but is persecuted by God's enemies for no good reason. So Jesus found a precedent for his enemies' hatred towards him in the antagonism encountered by David. And Jesus says that those religious leaders who hate him never knew the one who sent him, never really knew the Father. But in the same verse, Jesus says that they hated him for no reason. How can that be the case? See, by saying for no reason, Jesus reminds believers that hatred and persecution against him and his followers is often not because of any wrong that they have done, but simply because of irrational evil in the hearts of the persecutors. And this is what points us to the other focus for Jesus in his passage to the world. We need to remember that the world in John's gospel doesn't mean the world God created for us to enjoy. It's not about the physical environment. It's not about everyone outside the church. We so often talk about the church in here and the world out there in terms which I'm not sure are entirely helpful. But the world in Scripture encompasses everything of human society, organizations and structures, beliefs and values, priorities and purposes, that reflect opposition to God's divine purposes. As we read through scripture, we see that God's divine purpose is to live with mankind intimately, interpersonally, and to be glorified by all his creation. Right from the opening pages of scripture, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He came and dwelt in the tabernacle and then again in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. He came incarnate in Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. And he dwells in his church by the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, 
There will be no need of a temple because God will dwell with his creation, with his people in the new Jerusalem. God's intent has always been to be present with his creation and with his people. And they, in response, worship and glorify him as their creator, as the almighty, everlasting God. Yet mankind has a whole other agenda since the fall. It worships what it has created over the one who created it. It worships the work of its own hands. Right from the building of the Tower of Babel, mankind has sought to elevate itself, its own creations, its own achievements, its own self-determination. Human society is fundamentally oriented away from God's divine purposes. Jesus' words, his very actions, critiqued the world. It critiqued its motivations, its priorities, its distorted sense of what was of value, what was good, what was worthy in life. But not only did Jesus critique the motivations and orientations of the world, he fundamentally challenged their unbelief. The purpose of John's gospel is to demonstrate Jesus as the Son of God revealing the Father. Right from the outset, John speaks of the light coming into the world to illuminate. The gospel speaks of John the Baptist testifying to Jesus as the Son of God. The miracles recounted in John, seven of them, point to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And we get right to the end of the gospel. We're close to the end in John 20, 30 and 31. It tells us the purpose of John's gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in the fourth gospel, the primary expression of sin is failure to believe in Jesus as the one sent by the Father. We see something of this in verse 22 of our passage this evening that might at first seem a bit confusing. It reads, if, they had not, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus is not saying that they would not be guilty of any sin if he had not come. No, Jesus is talking of the sin of unbelief. Now that he has come, they have no excuse. The negative consequence of Jesus' mission is to expose unbelief in such a way that those who fail to believe are now conscious of their response and are held accountable for it. I wonder if there are any like that here tonight. I wonder if you have heard all the stories of Jesus, heard of the love of God, but refused to believe it, refused to accept Jesus as the Son of God, refused to accept him as your Savior. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase that ignorance is no excuse. Jesus says that since he came, there is no ignorance. A clear choice is placed before us, and we are accountable for the response that we make. The Bible is real. It's not just a bunch of fairy stories. Jesus walked this earth and did all the things that the Bible tells us, and he calls us to respond. 
the Jewish authorities and the world hate Jesus because he critiques both their orientation away from God and also their unbelief in the face of all the evidence. And Jesus says the world will hate his followers in the same way. Will hate them for the same reason. The world is not just oriented away from God, but is also oriented against God's representatives, the disciples, and now the church. And we can respond in two ways to this hatred. We can feel oppressed, defeated even. We can retreat into our churches where we protect each other, support each other, care for each other. We can withdraw from the world and batten down the hatches. Or, as I want to encourage you to do this evening, we can find light in the promise of the world's hatred. So to our third point, finding light. Why does Jesus address this subject with the disciples? Why, sitting around the table after their last meal together, does he start to talk of hatred and persecution? Well, chapter 16 and verse 1 makes it quite plain. So that you will not fall away. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the inevitable. He's getting them ready not to say, boy, you guys are in trouble. But to tell them to prepare them to stick to the task at hand. As we experience the world's ill will, as Jesus followers, we are to recognize that this is the sign of our continuity with Jesus' mission. Verse 19 tells us that Jesus has chosen us out of the world. And the unbelieving world does not take kindly to those who are no longer willing to live by its values and standards. Does not take kindly to those who threaten the sense of cohesiveness it has built. We as Christ's church continue his mission that critiques society. We are to show Christ's definition of love rather than the world's definition of love. We are to show Christ's definition of equality and the value of people, not the world's. We are to feed the hungry, care for the needy, welcome the stranger. We are to love the neighbor. We are to affirm what is good in society. God's common grace that is given to all the world in his beautiful creation. We are to rejoice in all the good that is a reflection of God's image in every human being. Yet we are also to continue God's critique of society. To work to change what can be changed to bring it in line with God's purposes. And at times we will have to reject what is outright contrary to God. As we continue the cause of Jesus today in our churches, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our social lives, we continue to critique society in the way that Jesus did. And we also continue Jesus' cause of challenging unbelief and testifying to the Father. The very stories of what Christ has done in our lives will speak of the saving grace of God, his faithfulness, his love, his provision, his mercy, his grace. How will they do that? 
Because Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will testify to him as the Messiah. Look at verse 26 with me. When the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. As the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, he is active in our actions and our words. As we critique a society, affirming the good, influencing what can be made good, rejecting the bad, the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus. As we tell our stories of Jesus in our lives, of what living in union with Christ looks like, the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ. As we show love and compassion, as we live as Christ would have us live, the Holy Spirit testifies to Christ. And Jesus teaches this to his followers so that when we face hatred, when persecution comes, we will know that we are continuing his mission and that the Holy Spirit is testifying to Christ just as Christ did to the Father. I think there's a reason for this passage coming at the end of chapter 15. Because this chapter, seen in its entirety, begins with the promise of fruitfulness. We are chosen out by Jesus and we are promised fruitfulness. If we stay connected to Jesus as branches to the vine, as we love each other as Jesus loved us, then when persecution comes, we will not only have strength through it, but we will have the promise of fruitfulness as the Holy Spirit testifies through us, continuing on the cause of Christ. It is my hope and prayer that we can not only continue the cause of Christ as we critique society and as we challenge unbelief, it is my prayer that we might also continue in the love of Christ. Not just residing in the love that he has for us. Glorious and amazing and comforting and strengthening and forgiving that it is. But that we may continue in his love for the world. Some of Jesus' words from Matthew 5 and 43, a passage you, you all know well. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus' critique of the world and his challenge of unbelief was born solely out of love for the world. He challenged culture and society, religious leaders, purely out of an unbreaking, unshakable, unrelenting love for his creation 
and for mankind. It's my prayer that as we face hatred, as we face persecution, we will respond in love. That we might love our enemies and pray for them. That as a world might hate us, we will see with eyes of faith to broken lives, to hearts that are loved deeply by God. That we might respond in humility, knowing that we too were once lost until we responded to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. It's my hope that we might have servant hearts to love a world that is lost. That we might pray fervently for those who do not know Christ and who have a lost eternity before them. And may the love of Christ reside in our hearts and his forgiveness and mercy urge us to hold out the same love, mercy, and grace to all those around us. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we think of your love for us, demonstrated in the servant heart of Christ that came to this earth and went to the cross for us, God, we cannot help but be bowled over by your love for us. Lord God, we know that we will face difficulties. You have promised that. But God, you have prepared us. God, help us to stay attached to the vine in Jesus. And God, fulfill in us your promise of fruitfulness. Lord God, may the Holy Spirit testify through our very lives through our words, through our actions, how we live in society, how we live with those around us. But God, give us hearts of love for those people that are lost. God, break our hearts for people who don't know you. God, help us to love those that persecute us. Help us to pray for our enemies. And help us to hold out the light of Jesus Christ. We pray this to his glory and for the extension of his kingdom. Amen.